Let's read this passage together. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. So it was the fall of 1989. I was in sixth grade. It was near Halloween. And I was a terrified young man of horror movies. Unlike a lot of my friends who could watch scary movies, I was happy to accept the rule of my house that I was not to watch movies with anybody starring Freddy or Jason. (laughs) I didn't want any part of it. I love to break other rules, but that rule I was happy to accept. I was happy to embrace. I was happy to obey because I hated scary movies. I still do up until about a year ago, and then I finally became a man. But, I mean, at the time, I was scared. In fact, I didn't want to see any scary movie. I didn't even like to hear, and some of y'all remember this, the theme music to Unsolved Mysteries that was on once a week. That stuff would scare me, keep me up at night. So I had no business as a sixth grader near Halloween getting on our church bus one night. Yes, we had a joy bus at the time. And head to nowhere, Oklahoma, to a haunted house. Now, when I got on the bus, I was full of ego and confidence, as you are as a 12-year-old. Nothing would scare me. Nothing was bothering me. And even as we got to the driveway of this multi-house haunted house, I was confident. I was feeling good. I was feeling ready for this. But then suddenly, as we parked the, the bus, all that confidence went out the window. Suddenly, out of nowhere, two guys dressed as the headless horseman started banging on top, horseback, on top of our bus with sticks and taunting all of the young people inside the joy bus, saying, come out and say hello to us. And they were speaking without heads. It was very bizarre. (laughs) But all of a sudden, my confidence drained like an unclogged sink. I had $2.00 the entry fee, and a permission slip in my hand, and I started to slowly put that back into my pocket. Now, what was bad outside all of a sudden got worse inside. There was much greater threat inside the bus than there was outside, not because there was ghouls and ghosts and haunted things working inside, but there was other high school boys and middle school boys who sensed my fear and saw me putting away my permission slip, and they pounced. Ridicule and all kinds of threats and and insults started to fly my way. Oh, you big baby, you can't take it, and all that stuff. And we sat in that bus for 45 minutes before it was our turn. And after 45 minutes of ridicule, the fear of what was happening inside finally exceeded what was about to happen outside, And our turn came, and I got up and went through the haunted house. At first, it wasn't too bad. There was some goofy stuff, a couple jump scares, some fake blood. But then our tour guide, yes, there was a tour guide. Our tour guide took us 
down through a cemetery. And in this cemetery, there was two big doors to an open cellar. And we walked down into the cellar. And in this brightly lit cellar, in the corner was a coffin. And the coffin door was open. And there lay a man who looked to be asleep, who was dressed like Dracula. Dracula wasn't particularly scary. No big deal. I'd made it so far. But then our tour guide asked us, she said, who would like to place a rose? I have three of them. Who would like to place a rose on Dracula's chest to see if he will come awake? I started to move backwards into the crowd (laughs) towards the cellar stairs. Three volunteers stepped up. I placed the roses on Dracula's chest and suddenly Dracula rose up from his coffin while at the same time he had a hidden lever in the coffin which he pulled that was tied to chains to the cellar doors and the cellar doors slammed shut. We were now trapped in there with Dracula. Panic ensued. All the confident friends I had, the buffoon of friends that I had, they started clawing at the door. Everybody was screaming. I'll never forget one of the high school boys in our youth group got close to Dracula's face, made a cross with his fingers, and started saying, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. (laughs) He just started going through these books of the Bible, you know. Our Sunday school teachers would have been proud. Blood was fake blood was coming out of Dracula's mouth. He, he died one, he, he got so close to one girl, he dyed her blonde hair red. It was crazy. It was scary. After a little bit, though, the doors opened, and we got outside, and laughter ensued. Now I'm going to come back around to that story here in a second. A story of vampires, and I'm going to ask you a question about being part of a kind of church. Because as a sixth grade boy, how I felt in that moment was, uh-oh, we're stuck here. I'm going to be stuck here the rest of my life. And I'm going to have the life sucked out of me. But as we get back to that story here in a moment, I want to ask you this. We're at our last week, our fourth week, that we've been studying what it looks like out of the New Testament, a vision to be church. And I want you to head to Ephesians chapter 4 with me if you want to flip over there. And as you're heading there, without any prompting or any leading, I want you just to think very quickly in your mind and answer this question. What makes a church successful? If you can answer that question, two or three things that pop in your head. Just do quick association. What's the first thing that jumps in your mind to when you answer what makes a church healthy and successful? With those things in mind, let's hear the words of Paul. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. So Christ, Paul is describing the church, this new body, this new humanity, in which all people from all backgrounds and races and cultures come together. He says, this is what Jesus has done. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. For what? To equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ, the church, may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And become mature. Attaining 
to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what we just heard here in Ephesians 4 is a vision, I believe, of what Paul would say to our quick question. What makes the church successful, Paul? It's a body of believers working together to be equipped and built up so that they can reach unity and acts of service and maturity in Christ. Now, I don't know how you answered that or what came to mind when you thought of a healthy and successful church, but this passage is a different vision than what most of us, I assume, think of. And for most of us, this is a radical shift in paradigm of what a measurement is of a healthy and successful church. Paul's saying something by what he doesn't say. Ultimately, he says a church is not successful because of numbers of people that are sitting in seats or even numbers of people that volunteer. Instead, he says a church is healthy when it is maturing and growing into the life that God has prepared through Jesus and manifesting the kingdom of God, embodying the way of Jesus wherever they go. That's the vision that Paul gives us. And for us, the vision we should gather then here is that if we're going to be church, then to be church means we as a people, together with the gifts we have, and Paul lists a few there, prophets, evangelists, apostles, pastors, and teachers, all of us should be working together to empower each other to live like, grow into And display Jesus. Now back to our vampires. Because while I was a sixth grade boy terrified and sitting in this cellar worried that I would never escape. A lot of us have probably experienced or a lot of people even if this isn't your experience. Have an experience of being part of a vampire church. A church in which... The people have lost their vision and the people are trapped without vision and they are slowly getting the life sucked out of them. See, a body of believers can have all their doctrine right. They can have a great Sunday together. They can do some great things. But if we are a people who are not working together, using our gifts serving each other, loving each other, and a few are actually being tired, bitter, anxious, and worn out, I got news for you. You're not attending a healthy church. You're attending a vampire church. How do you know you're part of a vampire church? It'll suck the life out of you. (laughs) Because the reason vampires suck the life out of you is because they've already had the life sucked out of them. If you're angry at church, If you're upset most of the time at church, you're a vampire. You're sucking the life out of the body of Christ. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to learn to be church. We've explored so far what it looks like to be family, to be the body, to be together and what it looks like to worship in spirit and truth. And today we're going to take one more step.
And I'd like to pray over this because this is a tough teaching. One of those things that Jesus does that is hard for any of us to do. Let's pray together. God, we've already said it in song. May the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart be about you and only you. Jesus, may you be clear to each of our eyes today. And Father, we've also prayed that you will make us servants, make us like you. May you convict us of what that looks like this morning. May your word speak. May I get out of the way. May all of us get out of your way so you can work directly on our souls, our minds, and our hearts so we can love you fully. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's go to John chapter three, this, or John chapter 13 this morning. You guys know this passage. It's a familiar text. It's Jesus at the Passover taking a turn and doing something unexpected. It's Jesus washing feet. A story that we often sum up with saying, look at Jesus' servant-like leadership. But what we're going to do this morning is not give you a lesson in, yeah, I've heard this before. We're going to set the stage, discover some different context, and perhaps see a different way of viewing this message, not from Jesus' actions, but from how the disciples and particularly Peter would have viewed this. So let's set the stage for just a second. In, in John chapter 12, Big John, Gospel of John, and in all the Gospels, what would have taken place before this is key. Jesus and his followers have just arrived in Jerusalem this week. A few days ago, and the crowds that greeted them greeted them with adulation and honor and praise. And the reason they did that was because it's Passover week. It's the 4th of July. It is a time of waving flags and waving banners of palm leaves. And it is a time of hope and deliverance and dedication. It is a time ripe with revelation and revolution. It is the hope of the people as they see Jesus that he will be the Messiah to finally free them from Roman rule. So revolution is in the air. That is why they greet him as they greet him. It's ripe in the air, and the disciples, if there is something in the air, they have been breathing deep. If the crowd was anticipatory with freedom, the 12 were hoping for it as well. The ousting of corrupt Jewish leaders who were the Sadducees and they ruled the temple, the hope of the overthrow of Rome and ultimately the reestablishing of the reign of the Messiah King, just like David over Israel. This was nothing new to the disciples. Remember some of their discussions, Mark 10 and other places where they come to Jesus and they are hopeful. Who will sit at your right and at your left? in your kingdom. They are already thinking about this. Who's going to get cabinet positions? Who's going to get the ring of power? Who's going to get the thing that we want? Who would find the greatest seat? Who would get authority? This is on their minds and hearts. And you must set this in context because John 13 opens up a whole new world when you remember that what they're longing for at Passover is not what they get 
from Jesus. Because instead of Jesus leading a political revolution, what we get is something truly revolutionary. Let's open it up with the first three verses. It was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The word there is telos. He loves them to the full. He's showing them the extent, the revolution, the realization of who he is. The evening meal was in progress, so somewhere along in the Passover, the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Remember that. All things are under his power, and that he had come from God as returning to God. So, we're going to set the stage here. The meal is in progress. Rebellion is in the air. Political revolution. It is the most important night of the festival. Now Jesus and his disciples would have been seated in something like this. And I'm going to get some volunteers. I think I've got 10 high school boys down here. You guys come on up here. I need seven of you in the back. And three high school girls or three girls, you guys are going to jump up here too. And I know that the apostles weren't girls, but... I know that adults won't come up here. So teenagers, I need three girls to come up here as well. All right? All right? Y'all come around here. One, two, three. Come around here, Coleman. Okay, girls, if y'all will come around here. All right, do I have 13 up here? Okay. You two boys. I'm missing two boys. All right. Sorry, I didn't warn them all. Okay. All right. So one, two, three, four, five. Girls, come around here. Six, seven. Eight, nine, ten, eleven. I need one more. I need one more. I'm, I'm counting wrong. Tatum, you're small. Come on up here. All right. <laughs> we can squeeze in. All right. So I need three on this side. Squeeze around here, Ryan. Go in there. All right. Come in here. And three right here. Okay. This is important, how they would have been seated. I need you guys to see this. This is what is called a triclinium. And they wouldn't have been sitting. They would have been a triclinium. Brad, Brad goes, what? Okay, a triclinium. Okay, (laughs) everybody get that? Brad's really struggling with that that word. And they wouldn't have been standing or seating. They would have been reclining. Tables wouldn't have been this high. They would have been 18 inches high. And they would have been seated in a certain order, an order of most honorable to least honorable. Tatum, you're at the least honorable seat, all right? And Jesus would have been at the most honorable seat. This is the honorable side, the right side. And in the middle of the right side would be Connor or would have been Jesus. Okay? At his right would have been the host, the second most honorable seat. And that, as we know, is most likely John, who reclines on his chest, right? So you're John, young John here. And then to his left, as best we know, because they dip into the same cup, at seat number Two, so if this is seat like zero, highest power, seat one, John, seat two would have been Judas. Crazy, huh? Now, the only, now all the other disciples, I would like to mention y'all, but I'm not going to because you're not important to the story, right? <laughs> they would have been seated around. 
Peter, as far as we know, was probably somewhere in here. At 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, 13. Maybe the least honorable seat. And that's important for the story because we see how things unfold. So remember, political revolution is in the air. Jesus is at the highest seat. And what does he do? What does he do at this moment? Passover meal is coming on. They're probably somewhere around, if you kind of read the details there, they're right after the second cup. There was four cups of thanksgiving. The second cup would be the cup of deliverance. They would raise it. They would remember God had delivered them from Egypt. They would drink of the cup. And then at that time, according to tradition, there was a moment where they would either wash their hands or they would have their feet washed again. Now this happens not by the person sitting at the lowest seat or even a servant who's attending to the house, but it happens how? Let's pick it back up. And y'all just hang out for just a second, okay? Actually longer than a second. You guys are going to be up here for a while. All right? Here's what happens. From the highest place, Jesus gets up from the mill, takes off his outer clothing, wraps the towel around his waist. After that, he pours water into a basin and begins to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So here's what just happened. And remember this. In John 13, 1, Jesus takes the towel. In John 13, 1, it says that Jesus is going to show the full extent of his love. He loves them to the end. It's the ultimate. It's the full revelation. It's that word of Jesus going, I'm going to show you exactly and fully who I am. So rather than doing what was expected, which was taking political power, Jesus does the opposite. He descends into service instead of ascending into authority. But often, as we often know, there's more to the story. He's actually doing more. See, we could often make this story just about servant leadership. We can kind of make this little story and so great. Jesus picked up a towel. Good job for picking up a towel. You can hold that there. And he goes around and he starts helping out and washing each other's feet. And we go, oh, look at Jesus. He's doing, menial, he's doing a menial task. He's such a servant leader. And we sometimes try to apply that to, yeah, I need to go pick up trash or I need to go move chairs on Wednesdays or whatever. And look, I'm a servant leader. Which is all good, but there is something deeper Because the story comes to an apex with what's on your screen here. It's verses 8 and 9. It's when Jesus comes around, and Connor, if you'll come around here, 
and he gets over here to Peter. We'll just, we'll just say you're Peter. Okay, Coulter, you good with that? All right. And he's going to wash his feet. You can just kind of stand there. I know it's awkward, but just stand there. All right. And he's, he's ready to wash his feet in which Peter then protests, right? And he says, no, you shall never wash my feet. Peter's given to absolutes, isn't he? All right, you can go back, Connor, thanks. I won't make you stand there. He's given to these absolutes. And he is saying, there is no way you're going to do that. And we can assume one thing. We can often assume, looking at this, that Peter is just can't imagine that Jesus would ever do this. No way, Rabbi. There's no way I'm going to let you do that. That's too low of a position. I hold you too high. Which can be part of what the lesson is here. But I believe that there is something else. And to truly understand what is actually happening here, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is a rabbi and these are his disciples. And when Peter accepted the call to follow, what he was accepting was a call to be just like Jesus, right? Remember that. When a rabbi came to a disciple and said, follow me, the disciple wasn't just saying for Coulter, he wasn't just saying to Connor, hey, I want to kind of just figure out things like you. He was saying to him, I want to be just like you, right? So Coulter would leave CHS and go to Periton High School. And he would become a ranger. And then he would join the band to be just like Connor, right? And he would, he would curl his hair a little bit on top, right? I mean, it was just like that. Now, I'm making jokes there, but that's important, right? He would trade in his turquoise shirt for a gray shirt, right? He would do that. But more than that, Rabbi-to-disciple relationship was, I don't want to just learn from you. I want to be like you. I want to be as much like you as I can. So yes, maybe it's that they're struggling or Peter is struggling with, Jesus, certainly you can't take that low of a position and wash feet, which you've often heard with this. But maybe there's something else going on. Maybe what actually is happening is that what it means to Peter And what this passage should mean to us is this. If my teacher and my Savior and my Lord, who I am to be like, takes the lowest place, then what does that say about me? If the one I am to imitate in all things rejects power to become a servant and embraces what is dishonorable, what does that then say about me? In this moment, Jesus is not humiliating himself. He's humiliating Peter. He's tearing down Peter's pride. Peter protests because he can't see himself washing feet. He's taking away Peter's self-honor, stripping Peter of his self-importance. This is the refusal. He isn't trying to save, here, Peter's not trying to save Jesus's honor. He's trying to save his own because he can't imagine a rabbi who 
he's willing to do this. See, it's easy to follow Jesus when he's got 5,000 following him, when he's raising the dead and healing the sick. That all stuff comes with honor and praise and a little bit of fame. But when Jesus now is stripped down, putting on a towel and washing feet in a place without honor, a place of embarrassment, a place of dishonor, a place without recognition, then the thing we have to ask ourselves is, embarrassed at that. Peter isn't trying to save Jesus' face. He's trying to save his own. This is why John continues to tell us Jesus' words. We'll pick it back up in verse 12. It says, when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And you guys can think about this, and I know you're about to get to sit down. So Jesus comes back to his place of honor, right? And he asks them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, highest place, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. In short, and this may just be me, but I wrote this down after reading this passage several times on Monday. And I just had this conviction with this passage. And it was, Jake, if you're not willing to follow Jesus here, then you're not willing to follow him anywhere. Because what Jesus is saying here is the implication of what he says is, you hold me up as Lord. You honor me at the highest place. But then if you're not willing to take the lowest place, then I'm really not your Lord and master. It's Peter trying to save his own face, not Jesus's. So before we get some implications, y'all can go sit down real quick. Thank y'all for coming up here. The Triclinium Church family, they sit in the Triclinium. (laughs) Appreciate y'all. I want to just give you one implication of this. Servant leadership is good. In fact, it can be a great thing. But Jesus washing his disciples' feet here is is not a lesson alone in just saying, well, I'll accept tasks that are below me. (laughs) This isn't about taking out the trash or moving chairs. You know, we always say that, oh, look, you have a servant heart, and that means we need you to move some chairs, right? (laughs) That's what the, that's church speak for. Oh, you have a servant heart. Why don't you wash dishes? You know, this is much more than that. That's a great starting point. This is about the church learning to be least. See, we can be together. This is why this is the most important out of the four lessons we've had about be church is that Jesus has given a model about you're going to be together, you're going to be family, you're going to exercise your gifts, but the way it's all going to work together, if you want unity in the church, if you want maturity in the church, you need a bunch of people in the church who follow Jesus to be least, to take last place, 
And that choice Jesus is displaying here is going to bring you hardship. It might even bring you ridicule. It might even bring you embarrassment. But Jesus is showing that there's times that the church has got to lead with their actions, not just with their voice or with their hiney taking up a seat. <laughs> they got to lead by going, I'll go last. I'll go further. I'll go the extra mile. Now, this is good news, right? Everybody feeling good about themselves right now? <laughs> Yeah, who wants this, right? Let's ask the obvious question. If you're not a Christian or if you're checking out Christianity, you're probably going, this sounds insane. It sounds awful, but Jesus closes verse 17. What did he say? You will be blessed if you do these things. If you take this position of being least, you'll be blessed. In Matthew 5, Jesus says the same thing. You're blessed Consider yourselves blessed when people persecute you, when people speak lies about you, throw you out. Because what it means is the truth is too close for comfort, right? And they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when this happens. Give a shout even. For though they don't like it, my Father in heaven does, right? That's out of the message. That's what he says. It's a blessing to take the posture. His brother James says it in another place. In James 1, consider it pure joy when you face trials. So is this some kind of sick, upside down, hey, I'm going to give you salvation on the cross and then pull the rug out from under you, Christians? Is Jesus a sadist? No. What he's trying to do with the disciples is what he's trying to do with us over and over and over. And I wish I had words to communicate this right. But Jesus is showing that the way that the enemy, that any form of the enemy, any form of selfishness, any form of us living into the way of the world, the way any of that is defeated, we know the way. That true life is not ever found in conquering. It's found in giving that it truly is better to give than receive. It's better to serve than to serve. We forget that, church family. Jesus is showing them here as he washes feet a little taste of the cross. He's showing them that he's about to overcome all death by his own death. He conquered death by death. And he's trying to show us as a church that ultimate victory over sin and death is not found by getting your way or getting the last word or getting the power we so desire. But the ultimate victory over sin and death in large and in small ways is always won by self-sacrifice. What would happen if we began to believe that this is the kind of life that would restore our marriages Restore our church? What if we started to live with each other in a way that we started to self-sacrifice so that relationships in the church could be built up instead of ignored? That we could heal the brokenness among us? That we could realize that the best way we encourage the church is by not showing up when I'm not busy, but by showing up when I'm actually busy because then I have to sacrifice for what really matters.
Why has our busyness become the ultimate authority in our life instead of Jesus, the foot washer? Why is it that our comfort has become the second greatest authority in our life instead of I live without shame so I can take the lowest position because Jesus has already paid it all. Washing feet is what it really means to be least and to die to ourselves. It means to lay down our pride at the things that might make us blush and make us embarrassed and maybe even bring us a little bit of ridicule. But the fact that our Savior would do it means we must follow him there. And if not, we just repeat. Sucking the life out of each other. Being vampires. But if so, if this is our call, and I believe it is, it is our ultimate call as a church, then we have something to do this morning. And my challenge to you is this. Just start somewhere. Start somewhere. Start giving of yourself so that others can get. Start laying down that one thing, those few things, that hurt, that pride, that ego, whatever it is, so that others can have. Will it cost you? Yeah. But it won't cost you anything that Jesus hasn't already done. Jesus has already laid it all down. And if we want to be a healthy church, a successful church, if we want to be church, then it's a full of a group of people who mature and build up in unity and do acts of service because we all look like Jesus. And Jesus' ultimate expression of his identity is self-giving love. Let's stand together and let's sing.